Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, a show where we talk to experts who've taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have sailed around the world to those who've started thriving businesses and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This is episode 25 with documentary filmmaker, surfer, and lifeguard, Devin Bisson. This episode was brought to you by Toad & Co. Formerly called Horny Toad out of Central California, this great outdoor clothing company makes 90% of their products using eco-friendly materials, whether it's organic, plant-based, or recycled fabrics. They also have a program called Design for Good, which totally kicks ass. They take a portion of every single item they sell and put it towards exposing people with disabilities to life-changing trips in the outdoors. Their mission also aligns perfectly with having a wild idea worth living. They're all about inspiring people to live their fullest lives, and they're rabid supporters of following your passions and refusing to settle. They also have a great tagline, which is keep good company, exactly why I started Wild Ideas Worth Living. You can check out all of their amazing products, their mission, and the ambassadors of all abilities they work with at toadandco.com. Devin Bisson is a documentary filmmaker who got her start as a beach lifeguard in Huntington Beach, California. At only 25 years old, Devin's already produced and created award-winning movies, including a movie called The Wave I Ride about big wave surfer Paige Alms, now the woman's big wave world champ. She also just did a short on the Syrian refugee crisis through the lens of lifeguards. She talks about this on the show. I did a story about Devin in Outside Magazine and just hosted her on a panel. It was with a bunch of other storytellers live at GoPro headquarters with the San Diego Diplomacy Center. And people love listening to Devin. Even though Devin is really young, she's got a lot of wisdom about the power of telling a story, how to do it, and why it's important now to tell it more than ever. I hope you enjoy this show. All right, so today we have on... Devin Bisson, awesome filmmaker on Wild Ideas Worth Living. Devin, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Thanks, Shel. Live and in person. Always like the live and in person ones better. So Devin, you know, your whole life you wanted to be a lifeguard when you were a little girl. I read about oh, yeah. that. And then you became a filmmaker. So how does one segue from Baywatch Babe? I'm just teasing you. I've always wanted to use that on you. Yeah, I wear the red. Uh, you, you're a Huntington Beach lifeguard, though. So, like, no joke, one of the, probably the busiest places to be a lifeguard in the world. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about lifeguarding, the segue into filmmaking, and, and kind of how the two are related. That's a huge question, I know. Yeah. Let's just start. No, go for it. I know. I'm actually always confused myself when people ask because I'm just like, yeah, what? How did that happen? But I definitely, I think the main thing is I just had such a big goal. And I think that's probably where lifeguarding hit me the hardest was that when I was just a little kid growing up in Huntington, and just like you said, it's a really busy beach and lifeguards are a little bit just like a really elevated, like it's just a big deal where I'm from. And so I wanted to be one really, really bad growing up in the junior lifeguard program. All my role models were lifeguards and that's just what I wanted to go for. And also, it was a big deal because I wasn't really naturally a huge, like, courageous water woman. 
And so, yeah, just from an early age, I don't know, it was like my battleground is where I had like my favorite days in the water, my worst days. And I think it's where I really early on learned kind of the, the grueling, like going after a dream and having it suck some days, having it be the most amazing days. And and lifeguarding was just this like heavy, heavy pursuit. And I think it was that endurance that kind of helped me understand like what filmmaking might be like and might get there. So tell me, what what does one have to do to become a lifeguard? <laughs> Um, where I'm, you, you mean like how to like try out and get there? Yeah. Like what are some of the crazy tests you guys had to do okay. when you became a lifeguard? Cause I think not a lot of people know about that. Yeah. Well, where I'm from, you know, seriously, we're really proud to be Huntington Beach lifeguards. It's kind of a joke. Like it's, it's a really big deal for, for us. We're really like kind of egotistical about it. We're just like, <laughs> we are the best because our beach, you know, we make the most rescues of any beach in uh, maybe the world, definitely in the United States. And it's kind of one of those like lifeguard tryouts comes around every year and we do like three really competitive swims around the pier and it's just a physical race women against men trying to get into that top like 10 or 20 however many they're hiring that year and then that's followed by a six-week training course where we're just like dog eat dog learning everything that has to happen at the beach and just going on all these crazy physical like we pull boats we pull our friends out of the water it's just crazy it's super physical do you get to jump off the pier we do yeah we jump off the pier many times in fact we actually climb back up it on a rope ladder as well so how fun yeah and i'm a total it's funny because i'm kind of a total wimp so i think that's why for just from a super young age i had no freaking clue why but i just was so drawn to the ocean and there were so many times where i wanted to just not have to continue to chase that dream okay but for those listening devin is six feet tall she does not look like a whip she rode in college she's she's a stud she's a really good surfer so you also grew up surfing when did you learn to surf I was a huge tomboy when I was a, a young woman, and I just wanted to do everything the boys were doing. I wanted to play guitar, I wanted to surf, and I wanted to cut my hair like them. And so, did at, you have a short haircut? I, I did. I had. I definitely looked very uh, boyish. Just so, so, just so you know, I know this is interrupting, but my sisters, when I was little, cut my hair half short, half long. They're like, "This is this is the coolest haircut ever." And yes, I was teased. I was such a tomboy. I'm, I'm, yeah, I was teased for a long time about that. No, haircut. it's, it's <laughs> solid because now we're like these gorgeous women, but we have all these great, you know, hobbies. So oh, it's so sweet. So anyways, you're a huge tomboy and surfing. We we're talking about how you yes. got into surfing. Yes. I was about like 10 years old when I started to learn to surf and you know, it's great. You grow up surfing, you get a bike with a surf rack, you ride down when you're a young kid. I did the junior guard program. It was just, it became definitely like a way of life. And you know, I think surfing and lifeguarding, the reason why they're just so influential to me growing up was like, they're really diehard passions. They're like super rooted in people when, when you start to follow them and it takes that like passion to, to do something like filmmaking. So filmmaking, you became a filmmaker right in college. Yeah, I guess it was strange, you know, surfing, documentary films and surfing go really hand in hand. You know, if you go to a baseball game, you can sit in the stadium, you can watch the baseball game, right? If you're a surfer, you know, you go to the beach and you kind of see like these small little people out there on these big waves. But the way that 
our sport communicates the story of surfing is by film. It's at, you know, Friday, Saturday nights, everyone gets around the surf shops, wherever, and they watch these films. And, you know, classically, surfers are storytellers. They get in the parking lot after a session and they're like, did you see me? Like, do you see like what happened there? They're there. It's such an individual sport that like has to be like performed by storytelling. And I think I really caught that like in the back of my head. Like when I was growing up, I saw a film Riding Giants was really influential to me and I just saw like that the the voice of big waves was brought like by film and it and if if not for film we wouldn't have had that story so that's when I realized like how powerful it was wow that's true I I really like that that movie Riding Giants (laughs) Laird Hamilton who doesn't like Laird so you know you once describe storytelling and lifeguarding similarly in that they kind of both save lives Mm mm-hmm that's that's a big statement, but it's true. Storytelling. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. And I'm really happy you said that because it is it is really my philosophy like behind storytelling. And I would say that it's kind of the reason why I've stuck with it because I'm a little bit, you know, I'm just stubborn. I'm a little bit lazy. Like I need a lot of motivation to work really hard. And for me, lifeguarding, it's such a in the present moment. Someone's drowning. You're there. You have to be there. There's no excuses. You have to go all the way. Right. And if storytelling, if it wasn't so like for the need of saving lives, like I don't know if I would be able to be as like committed to it. And when I mean that, I think that storytelling saves lives is that to me, like storytelling, it isn't so fluffy, like cute idea of like, oh, films and oh, this it's like truly for individuals and for communities to be in touch with like your own individual story as well as like the story of the world or your community that you're in it's a game changer as far as like your connection to yourself like the decisions you make the motivation you have and I've studied storytelling like on a really like earthy level like down to you know the influence it's had forever and ever and I really have like come to like this huge 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 just idea for myself that storytelling is a lifesaver so you went to school for filmmaking mm-hmm. at Chapman. Did you know that's what you were going to study or did you meet someone who said, hey, maybe you should try documentary filmmaking? It's really weird, but like it's I still try to figure out how like when the moment was that I just knew that I needed to go. Like, again, I've always I had just a lot of stuff happen to me like as a young kid where I think I really had to learn to trust my gut and filmmaking was always in the back of my head a little bit because of surfing and because of what I saw in surf filmmaking but something just happened where I you know I was gonna about to go to school and I was um, recruiting for rowing and I just shadowed this girl who was a screenwriting major and I always was creative and I was like you know what like I want to go to school for filmmaking and I want to make documentary films and like it should have been something more serious than that like the way that I've become like this you know my career is now filmmaking but it really was just like that like somehow it was just this like gut feeling and I just jumped on it and I went with it that's awesome and you're 24 years old which is really young to have already had almost 25 (laughs) almost 25 okay maybe when this actually comes out you might be 25 you've already had you know, one huge movie come out, one with yeah, Paige Alms, mm-hmm. your first movie, which I think is funny, the art of lost art of making Parmesan cheese. Oh, was yeah, it, was that, that was called? that my first film was Seek for Maggio. And it was that uh, they were these Sikhs saving the craft of Parmesan cheese, saving the craft of <laughs> Parmesan cheese. You, maybe you could just talk about that story. I think that's kind of an interesting one. You know, yeah. you, you found a, a, a really interesting subject that 
no one else was, I guess, doing and it became an award-winning film. Yeah, you know, that film is one that I'm starting to look more and more back on as like the film that taught me all the secrets to making a good film. It was my first year of film school. And so you were how old? I was 20, 20, 19 or 20. Yeah. And um, I had this really good friend that I went to school with named Katie Wise. And there was a Seek Lens uh, film festival and Sikhs, you know, um, they're, it's a religion from India and like they wear turbans. And so a lot of times they're really like ostracized. And so the Sikhs were giving money to documentary students to make films on like their peaceful culture so that like they could get the awareness out about their religion. And so they, we were, you know, we were pitching for characters and I was so young. And so was my peer Katie that we obviously weren't going to get the grants like compared to the seniors. And, um, the, uh, festival director told Katie and I like, Hey, we have a little extra money that just came in. Like if you come tomorrow and pitch us with a story, like we'll give you, we'll give you a grant. And so Katie and I went home that night and we were just Googling like crazy, like a total Google fest. Cause we had no idea like anything about Sikhs before this festival came around. And I remember we were just delirious in the middle of the night, like joking. And I Googled like Sikh free diver. Cause I really wanted to do something related to the water. And like, I have no idea how, but this article from the New York times popped up and the headline said, Sikh save the craft of Parmesan cheese. And we were kind of rolling, laughing about it. And then at the by morning time, like we had no story other than that. So we just like put our blazers on, walked into the office and like pitched it like totally just like seriously. And he was like, I love it. And we were like, crap, like we don't know how to make this film like at all. We have no context. We just have this article. And our professor was like, ah, no, no, no. Like they don't have any experience yet. And uh, yeah, three months later after like spending all this time with one of our friends who spoke Italian at school was studying Italian at school just like cold calling these Parmesan cheese factories like do you have any Sikhs who work here we flew over and we flew over to Italy Italy, and just Katie I and our um one of our cinematographers and we I just learned like we just had a gut instinct that we were gonna find the story we kind of like like discreetly didn't really have like a character and kind of told our professor we did and we went over there and it was one of those situations where we could have totally been awful could totally been like flat on our faces wasted money all that stuff looked like idiots but we had a good instinct we had a story we really believed in and then we kept following it really really strongly while we were in Italy and we ended up coming back with this story that was had so many layers to it and we met this family that worked in dairy farms and they were a part of the whole process of parmesan cheese and really 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 involved in the Sikh community and so we just came with like this back with this like multi-level story about like immigration and like the new generation of Sikhs and stuff and it was crazy like it went huge we came back and we made it and it went around the country and we were only like 20 years old you know and it was such a big deal for us that is so awesome that is a perfect example of fake it until you make it yeah. hustle and it sounds like that's that's sort of one of your tactics is is you tactics it became to find these stories that no one else was telling. How did that lead to your next film about Paige Alms? Who Paige Alms is a she's the big wave world champ right now, but back then when you found her, she was just a big wave. Well, she was still an awesome <laughs> big wave surfer, Surfing. but she wasn't as known as she was today. Yeah. I found out from Sikh Formaggio that if you picked the right story, 
that it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter what your um, prereqs are or how much money you have, that you are going to walk into doors like you couldn't walk in. Otherwise, if you just pick that right story and the one where you have access to. In documentary filmmaking, it's all about access. Like how can how close can you get to your characters? And when I was open kind of like my heart to like a ready to make a new film, I saw like this little tiny article on Paige Alms. I knew I wanted to do something on big wave surfing and with a female character because I grew up with just so many surf films in my head, but no female characters. And I saw a page and it was just this like tiny, I mean, I think like four sentence article. And I just instantly knew I was like, if I'm right, like this really seems like one of those stories that is going to go all the way. And, you know, it's insane because again, right, like I had nothing, I had nothing on my back as far as like some crazy film I'd done. If I pre- approached like Laird Hamilton to make like a feature length film, he's like, no way, like you're a kid, like get out of here. Right. But Paige was like, no one was really willing to like shine a light on her yet. And I find like so much passion and, and adrenaline from like shining a light in the corners that a lot of people don't want to go to. And that film was great. So what was it like working with Paige? And did you have to go surf Jaws with her? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. Uh, it was I didn't surf Jaws. Um, I think I'd die. But and the film wouldn't have been made. But um, working with Paige is amazing. The the really cool part about making documentary films and I'm sure just like you getting to talk to all these people on a podcast is like you get it you get like perspective and you get to enter a world like you would have never been able to before you know I'm was never going to be a big wave surfer I wish but by telling Paige's story like I got to understand it to a deeper level did you at least go into the channel at the and uh i get to go watch any of that it's so gutting i've watched jaws from the cliff the days that we flew to shoot page um jaws was having like the biggest swell it had had in the past like 10 years or something so no one i mean i remember because page had just wrecked her shoulder and she was getting back um and it was even it was way too big for anyone to paddle into it and she was just so depressed like standing on the cliff so we watched it together like breaking at 100 foot or something Wow, she's such a great surfer. And so what's so interesting about this film is, you know, you, you you create films to create change. And it's so interesting that today, a year after the film has been made, Paige is the woman's world champ of big <laughs> wave surfing. And there is, there was never a big wave world champ event. Oh my God. I mean, it leaves me really speechless. The wave I ride was such a confidence builder for me because that was another story where I just had this really huge gut instinct. Like we have to make a film on page. And even there were so many times during that project where it was just like about to be on the cutting room floor and and not make it. And I just was like, no, like we have to keep pushing this film forward. Like we got to keep finding funding. And like throughout that whole journey and process, we you know finish this film months later we have women in the big wave world tour and Paige becomes like the big wave world champion I just don't I mean it's fairy tale for a documentary filmmaker did you talk to the WSL which is the world surf league while you were making this film yeah of course we I mean we were really in contact with every single person in surf trying to not only fund the film but also you know it's for documentary filmmakers it becomes a strange line that you start to walk on where obviously you're telling a story that's real. So you also become a part of that person's life and whether it's like blackfish and it's killer whales or, you know, 
the cove and it's dolphins or something like you become an advocate for something that you weren't even necessarily like involved in you have to become an expert to to make a film right and so suddenly you're just like on the forefront of like pushing this forward oh it's so cool i love i love that story well i actually have a couple more questions about <laughs> about page's film because it was such a good film it it's it was a huge film it was a long film do you have any advice to people about what it takes to make a long film or is there advice about mm -hmm. what's the hardest part is it raising the money is it making the film is it you yeah know? oh I think it's really good to note that I had no idea that I was making a feature length film when I started the Got film okay. I, I thought that I was starting a 10 minute short but this is actually I mean this is this is good because what I'm saying is that like again like you know, you can go out and like have a goal and you want to do something and you want to do it like really kind of like sterilely and, and where you're like really trying to force something to happen. But like being in tune with like your own story, being in tune with like your own goals, like really authentically, it allows you to have that kind of like organic push to things. Right. And when I was going to make pages film and just having like this super authentic connection to what was happening, I also like I just had I just have those confidence in like keeping it going and and you know in a lot of times when funding was definitely the hardest thing for this film as it continued to grow because I hope this isn't confusing but like as a documentary filmmaker like your life you know a lot of times these projects take something like one to two years you know your life is growing and moving as well as like this journey and this real life that's in front of you and so you're trying to like blend these things together at the same time and you're also trying to like figure out when to like finish filming when's the story done you know like where did you pick it up from and Paige's story just kept growing and growing in front of us and so it was like all of a sudden you know we're filming her and she has a hurt shoulder and she's trying to get back in the water and then two months later they're having like the first woman's heat in Oregon like okay we got to go film that a few months later we're trying to finish the movie but we're like stunted from funding and so it's taking forever and we're really upset about it but then a few months from that Paige rides the first barrel at Jaws ever and it makes like it was called the wave heard like around the world like as a joke that year That's and awesome. so yeah, it's my point is that like you just for anything long or short, you just have to be close to like the heart of it. So I've actually heard you say that, you know, there's a big part of, you know, letting go in telling mm -hmm. your stories. Can you talk about that? What role of just kind of letting go, letting go plays a role in, in the stories you tell? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like really gutting to finish a film like the creative process, like for any creative is the place like you hate. And then when it's over, like you're so sad that it's done. <laughs> it's a very like mental game. Um, and also for for Paige, you know, I became so close and, and so passionate for like her fight. Like I just so badly wanted like her to have a sponsor and I so badly wanted her to succeed that it just definitely like got really hard at the end there to, to try to like let go of of that process and that would happen with with any film that I'm working on and so there's definitely a break I like to take after I do films to kind of just realign with everything because for you know whatever period of time you're fighting like your your fight for your film and you're fighting like for the for the film's like life and yeah, it, it's definitely a spiritual, like mental, physical game to let go of it at the end. That's that's you know I, I love that in between your your films you write you teach poetry to little girls and probably boys too. You <laughs> teach lifeguarding, you teach swimming. So can you tell me a little bit about 
what you do in between films that you make. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate for taking breaks. Creative ventures, anything you're doing like this that takes like your full, if you're really coming to it, like your full head, your full heart, it's going to take everything out of you, right? And I don't think like my storytelling gut, I don't think like my endurance would last if I just jumped onto another project or like chase the next thing. So I really like to take a break and just get everything, every responsibility like off and just get back to the basics again, like get my hand in paint, like just start taking walks and like writing poetry. And I love writing. Um, but you teach poetry yeah, too, te- right? Yeah. So how does that work? People I mean, well, just come to your studio and... Yeah, I have this little studio um, over a ceramics studio in Costa Mesa, California. And I mean, again, like I just, I freaking, I wish so many more people were connected to the creative process and to, and to poetry. So wait, I'm so what happens? Dork. You have this, you so have I this just, studio. I just invite like these young, like 13, year olds it like probably sounds a little creepy into my studio to like teach them I just want to teach them about rhythm and teach them about poetry and more so because I think I I really like to teach people about storytelling but I think that's really like an ethereal idea for a lot of people when you say storytelling like that means a lot of different things to people they don't really get it so I teach them about poetry and teach them about writing and and we'll like do free writes we'll pull words out of hats and all right you know the same thing we'll just drum stand up dance whatever but i just trying to you know teach them in at a very young age about being connected no that's so cool it's not creepy at all you're a junior (laughs) lifeguard instructor i'm sure these little girls love you and worship you and look up to you it sounds so fun so you do pottery you teach poetry and in between when you're taking a break you once told me in an article that I wrote for Outside that all of a sudden these stories come running at you. And you're like, oh, crap, here comes another story and you're not totally ready. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Tell me how this next story about the Syrian refugee crisis kind of came at you full speed and that you had to cover it. Yeah, I don't know if I'm more sad that my sabbatical is over or that I'm starting a new film. But I definitely like there's a time when I'll start to feel like, okay, I'm refueled. I'm like ready to tell another story. And I kind of like write like a little cheesy note to myself about that I'm ready to like receive like a new film and or just like you receive a new story to to go for it. So you write like a little mantra. Yeah. Because I love like, that. I it's kinda, not cheesy. We no. all do that. <laughs> okay. there's, there's tons of people on this podcast who do things like that. So I usually write a letter to the last film to let it go. And like I and I write like a new letter to like the next film to receive it. Because I, I really do think it's like a birth. Like you're totally accepting this like t- huge journey to like kind of come and crash into your life. And so... That's what I did. Can you tell me kind of what I, I don't know tell- on this? What does one of those letters look like? Well, when I wrote a letter, like the way I write it was just so sad to let go because it was just the most exciting and thrilling thing. And it just had so many amazing like products of that film being made. But um, I just wrote a letter to it about like all the things it taught me. And then also like all the things, you know, the the mistakes I made that I did that I was like, I know you want to come on to my next journey, but like I don't want you like here. <laughs> you know, I let go of the things I learned. And it helps me to like remember what yeah, remember what like I learned from that thing to to not go into the next film, and That's then awesome. yeah, and then of course like in the next letter I just write what I want to like kind of come to the surface. So Syria, for those who don't mm-hmm. know, like how did this film come to be? <laughs> Crazy lifeguarding, really. My friends are a have a organization that teach third world countries or anyone who needs them lifeguard they teach them lifeguarding training right so they're able to go certify these people and leave and now this country has lifeguards and i 
you know, I've never really was drawn to do political stories. So the Syria thing kind of freaked me out a little bit. Maybe I didn't have the confidence to do it yet. But my friends who have this just kind of like crazy organization, but has never responded to a crisis all of a sudden, I was living in Boston at the time, and I flew home to do a Swiftwater training course with some of my lifeguards in the winter. And there were just like small talk. And someone goes like, hey, do you know that ISLA, International Surf Life Saving Association, is going to Greece in two weeks to go respond to the drowning crisis in the Aegean Sea? And I was like, no, but... Just my ears perked up. I just I just knew like instantly. I was like, okay, I got to call Olin, who's the founder of the organization, and let him know like, hey, your story is happening right now. And like we – I don't know what we're going to get. I can't promise you anything. We might get nothing. But like I have to come and I'll bring my crew and we're going to do this right now. Wow. And so this film, Lighthouse Molivos, comes out in June? It, yeah, it's going to come out this summer. This summer. Sometime this summer. So hopefully by the time this airs, it'll be, it'll be almost out or out in a few mm-hmm. weeks. Um, or it might be out. We'll definitely put the trailer on. What are some of the, the things you saw that were, I guess, the most shocking? Mm, well... We went to an island called Lesbos Island, which is this tiny, tiny island closer to Turkey than it is Greece. But it was just like the landing ground for all the Syrians who were leaving. And, you know, I've just it's it's definitely like an experience I'm still digesting like a year out, which is kind of crazy. And which is honestly why it's taken me so long to edit this film, because it was just really difficult to watch the footage over and over again and try to mold the story and understand what it needed to say. But the most shocking things were just like the desperation to obviously mm. like leave a place. And it's, I still, I don't have like a ton of words for it. I think just like anyone, it's a really humbling experience to see, you know, a world crisis that every, it was huge to go see something that everyone was talking about and knew about. I just remember you telling me there was a time when the lifeguards were sitting around the fire at night and the UN and, and other workers had kind of gone home because the boats were just coming during the day. And you said, all of a sudden you guys saw what what you thought was like just a ton of animals like running up like a herd of animals running over the hill and the boat had crashed into the rocks and there were people there were refugees who'd crashed because they don't know how to drive these boats and they're just thrown on these boats without drivers without training and it was nighttime so they hit this land maybe you can tell me the rest of the story because it's a crazy story yeah, I mean, that definitely was like the moment of moments when we were there because it was already a really like uncontrolled situation when we were receiving the boats in the daytime. And in fact, really strangely, with a crisis like in the time of modern technology, the smugglers had communication with the lifeguards on WhatsApp and they would actually tell us when they were releasing boats. So we would kind of be a little bit warned for them, which is just insane. But, uh, we were no boats were crossing at night because it was just too dangerous um but the the situation began to come more desperate and people with less money wanted to cross Mm. and so the smugglers were like all right you want to cross um but you don't have the thousand or five thousand whatever they're calling it that day they're like okay well you can take like a night crossing or you can take a crossing when it's raining or stormy or whatever and um we were just all hanging out and this was when we would usually just kind of chill and yeah looked over to the left of us and i just thought like some crazy herd of sheep or something was like running towards us and it was just all these people who had crossed 
about a hundred who had who had crashed about a hundred yards away and were with baby i mean i honestly am still blown away i have no idea how they climbed like the cliff to get to us and you know i couldn't speak to any of them in arabic but just it's like they're freezing wet like hyperthermia and again like because of their culture obviously they're not like apt to have men like help them undress and like get dry clothes on and our whole camp was men lifeguards except for me my um friend katie who is uh dping the shoot and one other lifeguard so it was all three of us trying to get these women into socks pants shoes and get them dry it was it was complete chaos wow and that you didn't even it's not even in the film because you're oh yeah you put your film camera down mm-hmm. there was a moment where katie and i were like oh my god this is gonna be like an insane scene for the film you know like these refugees now come when the un has gone home and no one's here to dress them and then obviously like a few seconds in we like are, we look at each other like oh my god like we can't we have to help right now like this can't be filmed wow that's crazy and you're really young it's amazing you're tw- 25 we'll say almost 25. almost 25 you know what what advice it's it's really cool because you found a career doing what you love and you figured it out really young what advice can you give to just young people or anybody about finding a career around kind of doing what they love and then making a living doing it yeah i am a filmmaker for sure i but i can i usually like say like I'm an artist and I study storytelling I have an obsession with storytelling like not in just the way that I choose film like as a medium because of like the time of like technology but because I honestly want to and believe that like through my films and through kind of like spreading a little bit of education on the creative process that you know, like, I'm I'm really stoked if, like, my career is, like, an inspiration or something to someone else to, like, go out and do whatever they want to do. But what I think is so much more important is having, like, a connection to your own story. Because no one can give you – any person who you, like, admire or you think they're doing something crazy, like, their, their story of how they got there is going to be all over the place with all these twists and turns that you could never, you know – multiply into your own life and that's because like they have their own story and they were like close to the pulse of it and they were you know there for every single twist and turn and like decisions to you know making what decisions like to go next and so I am you know I'm hoping in like the next few years of my career like that I can work even more with people to to understand their own story so that they can then make those decisions like in their life at every like twist and turn of like how to just keep close to the pulse of like what they want to do and who they're trying to be. I like that. What advice do you have, I guess, then to give to help people become closer to their stories? Like what are things you tell people? Yeah. Well, I introduce storytelling to people really through asking like asking questions when I start a film like I ask a lot of questions about like what I want the film to say what I want it the themes to be of it and it's like you know I think these are things we were all taught in grade school about like oh you know like themes tones plot and all that stuff but I really you know applying that to your own life and like looking at it it brings like a lot to the surface really fast as far as you know like what what are your intentions like what do you want to be like loudest in your life you know how do you want to feel like when you're doing these things like in how do you want it to sound like how do you want others to be involved and it's like I start introducing storytelling like through questions and asking those questions and I I just think 
you know, sometimes there's a little bit of fear to be like that involved with your own life because you start asking questions and then you know what? Like you have to answer them. So wait, those are good questions to ask yourself. So let's start, you know, what's the theme of your life? Yeah. What do you want? What do you, how do you want to feel? How do you want to feel with what you're doing right now? I think that's a great question because like when you make New Year's resolutions, for example, (laughs) sometimes when you get what you want, it's not how you wanted to feel. Exactly. So how do you want to feel? What's the theme? What were some of the other ones? Um, you know, like who do you, who do you want to be like involved or what? You know, for me, like relationships are such a big deal to get like a lot of things done. And so, who do you want to be involved yeah. in the story of your life? Mm-hmm. I like that. That's yeah. really good advice. Thanks. Um, what's the best part about making a film? Is it being done? Is it interviewing the people? Is it the whole thing? I'm guessing it's not the fundraising. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been a much easier question. Like, what's the worst part of filmmaking? Fundraising. Um, Oh, God. What's the best part of filmmaking? You know, like, it's, you know, I'm sure so many artists say this, but process. Like, again, just being close to, like, that pulse. So much so that you, like, know when you're making, like, the right decisions. What's your routine like when you're making a film? Like, are you, do you, do, do you have any routines? Like, do you wake up? Do you do yoga every morning? Do you drink certain coffees or have a certain breakfast? Meditate? Yeah, I I'm a really big fan of waking up and and reading poetry. Poetry is just such like it's such you know, and I think a lot of people like are a little bit scared of poetry because a lot of times you can't understand it. But like, read some Mary Oliver poetry when you wake up. Mary, Mary Oliver. Oliver. It's like the, and that's you know, there was a long time when I was my routine. Now it really revolves around not having to work for my worth. There was like a long time when I was making films that I just was hustling so hard because I was young. I didn't feel like I was, I had a job. I didn't feel like I was, you know, worthy of like making a film. And so I overworked myself like so heavily. And I think when you're starting to make, yeah, your own routine, your own, your own day to day, it's really good to remember that like, you don't have to wake up and work in order to be like worth something that day. Like, and I love that. Yeah. It's just, I think it's a difficult thing when you, when you work for yourself, you just, you're your own boss and you always feel like you're not doing enough. I struggle with that all the time. So you wake up and you read poetry. <laughs> yeah. I, I liked it. Like I'll bike to my office or something. I like to do something that reminds me that like I didn't like I, you know, the first thing didn't need to be work in order for me to like actually get to live my day. Oh, that's awesome. And you surf. Of course. Yeah. I love to surf. So one other great thing is that you are young and, and you're technically a millennial. <laughs> I'm on the borderline of millennials. I'm kind of old. <laughs> So what do, what do old people, even my age, not get about millennials? What are some things that, like, millennials just, you know, just don't understand? Like, I just found out I was a millennial, like, a few months ago. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I like to try and say I'm a millennial, too, because no. I act like one, but I don't you know. know like, maybe I am one. I don't know. I think that's, like, the millennials, like, seems like it's such a derogatory word these days. Like, But, yeah. you know, like... Okay, so being a millennial, what it means is it just means you're like a part of a a generation, right? Yep. And everyone's a part of a different generation that has like a boatload of variables like in it that cause you to respond a certain way. And I would just say like about being a millennial is like I would hope like we're a little bit less like afraid 
to need like protection when while doing things. And what I mean when I say that is when I was making this film, a lot of the people that I work with, you know, we work with distribution companies, music licenses. Um, I work with editors. I hire people, fire people, all that stuff. Everyone usually like their first couple things when we're, we're going about like starting to collaborate with each other is kind of, you know, that whole thing. Like you've got contracts, you know, how am I going to be rewarded for this? Like, and all those things, they start to kind of, they really sound like how, well, how am I going to be like protected? Like when I join like this, this journey with you or trying to make this and like, how am I going to you know, be guaranteed something? How am I going to like get something out of this? And for storytelling, like the storytelling is most like raw and vulnerable and like it has no guarantees. And I think that millennials, I hope, and I would definitely myself like that that's becoming less of like a need on return for the things you're involved with. And I think that that's why like hopefully our work like tends to go that way. So you're saying that millennials care less about, you know, a monetary like return they just want to have their story out there i think they're a little bit more open-minded about like the the quantifiableness of what's like coming back to them and, and i think they're like op- more open-minded about what you know the thing like whether it's like t- you know it doesn't have to be money like whether it's time or an experience or you know uh, like I just I do I like hope that that's what they are. No, I get that. So that that they're a little bit more open to just the experience mm-hmm. rather than just the result, the yeah. process. <laughs> I, I like that. Um, what's been you know one of the things you do is you you do work for yourself and you've built this life around following your passion and you have your own career. You work for yourself. Being a freelancer or sole proprietor isn't always easy. What's been kind of some of the hardest things that you've had to learn in order to follow your wild mm-hmm. ideas? Mm. Or what have been some of the tactics that you've sort of used to be able to live out your wild ideas? Yeah. Seems like you know, one of them is not to have fear. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's such a mental game. My God, working for yourself is such a mental game. And I just constantly check in with myself. I have a lot of meetings with myself. I'm sure now I'm actually telling you my secrets. So now when you're bugging me about anything, I'm going to, this secret's out, but I constantly like, I'll be like, I'm going to have a meeting, but it's like with myself. Like, oh, I love that. And so I'll, if someone's like, I just make sure to have that like check-in time. You have to be like centered, mentally clear to work for yourself. Do you schedule meetings with yourself? Mm-hmm. I totally do. Yeah. That is Every, amazing. I It's usually like a mid, I usually have like a midday meeting with myself. And what do you ask yourself in these meetings? Um, I usually ask myself, I like to keep, no, I like to, this helps me a lot, but I, I literally write down every single thing I'm do like I do. Like if I send an email, if I, you know, finish something off, I write it down because I think we, when we work for ourselves, we forget how much we're, we've actually done in one day and we might be at the end of the day and we'd be like, God, I didn't do anything. And it's like, no, like you did a million things today. Wow. This is awesome. So, so I write down every, like while I'm doing stuff, it makes me feel so good. It's just like putting a golden star on yourself. I write down everything I do. It also keeps helps me keep a lot of track of like the things that are in works. And when I have that meeting with myself, I usually look at them and I I have a list and it's a list and it has two columns. It says art and the other side says bullshit. And what it is, it's like I kind of, you know, when you work for yourself, there's a lot of bullshit you have to do, right? And uh, I like to just remember that like it's all kind of a gateway to get to make my art and to get to do what I want to do. And so uh, like having these lists and like having a an overall list of like the bullshit that I'm having to get done that week and the art that it's like allowing me 
that that meeting in the middle of the day just helps me see like okay like how much you know i don't want a day too filled with like bullshit like i want to make sure that i do some things that i really wanted to do i think this is going to help a lot of people Deb, and that's really good advice i know this is your secret but i really appreciate you sharing this so if you could go back and tell your 15 year old self one thing what would you tell her you can tell her more than one thing more actually. than one thing god i would tell her to uh to not be so hard on myself about how kind of like non-linear that line is it just when when i was doing anything or going for anything i'm sure this is for everyone it's just so like just so many steps backwards forwards to the side whatever when you're trying to go for something and i just have beaten myself up so much about like maybe some of those mistakes and it's just like it's so part of the process i wish i understood that like as i was younger that is just all a part of the process that's such good advice are there books that you love or recommend you mentioned mary oliver oh my god yeah i would say it again Jeez, i mary oliver is like my go-to like quick read but i also even even if you're not a writer because i do think writing introduces you a lot about like understanding your own story I think it's so good to read books about writing, like um, Still Writing by Danny Shapiro and Bird by Bird by Anna Lamont. Forgetting. Anne Lamont. Yeah, thank you. Because writing and creative process, even if you don't think you're creative, it's about life. So if you're a part of the creative process, like you're really involved in your life. I haven't read that one by Shapiro. I need to get that one. Thank you. If you could fly an eco-friendly plane across the sky and it could say... You know, or like one of those like ones that writes the things in the yeah. sky over Huntington. Yeah. And it could give a message to the world. What would your message be? Know your story. Know your story. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you actually gave a talk at Google about this. Is that correct? Yeah. I I spoke at Google to some of their employees about the way that authentic storytelling like affects like your productivity, affects really everything and the way that knowing your story like affects your life. Wow, that sounds like an awesome talk. I hope that there's more talks with me to come, Devin. I love talking to you. We're actually going to be doing an event with Devin, GoPro May 8th. I don't know if this podcast is going after that. Shoot. Devin, it's been so great to have you. Where can people find out more about you? My uh, company is Hughes of Blue Stories. And so HughesofBlue.com is where all my stuff's at. I love it. Devin, thank you so much for being on Wild Ideas Worth Living. You rocked it. Oh, thank you so much, Shelby. I hope you enjoyed that show with Devin. She is awesome. Her movie actually hasn't premiered yet, so just check back on our Instagram page, Wild Ideas Worth Living, to find out when she's premiering it. You can also go to Devin's Instagram or go to her website, hughesofblue.com. We'll have all this in the show notes on wildideasworthliving.com. Also, for those of you who've been asking, how can I spread the love or help contribute to the podcast? Well, now there's actually a donation page on wildideasworthliving.com. For the cost of a cup of coffee, your contribution means a lot. But also, if you just want to help, you can tell a friend or five and sign up for our email newsletter. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to our sponsor, Toad & Company. Thanks for all of your great messages and emails. I love them and your reviews on iTunes. Wherever you are in the world, don't forget, the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 